right, good morning. If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to open up with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to be as we continue looking at our uh, sermon series on the life of Jesus in the book of Luke, figuring out who Jesus is in the book of Luke. And we're going to be at Luke chapter 8 this morning. While you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a question that's going to guide our time together this morning, all right? And why I'm asking this question uh, will become a little bit more evident as we walk through, the, walk through the text and then the rest of the sermon. But the question I want to throw out to you for you to ponder while we even read this text is this. Do you trust Jesus to guide your life no matter the circumstances? Do you trust Jesus to guide your life no matter the circumstances? Another way to, to say that is do you trust Jesus to take care of you in all of life no matter the circumstances. Now, I, I know the, the easy Christian thing to do, and you're in a church this morning, so you're in a good place to do this. The easy Christian thing to do as you hear a question like that would be to say, well, yes, of course I trust Jesus to guide my life no matter the circumstances. But I really, I really wanna, I want you to give some thought for, the, for that. When I say, do you trust Jesus to guide your life? I mean, do you trust Jesus to guide your life in every single circumstance, even when the circumstances spell out and, you, and you're in a space where you don't know how you got there or you don't know what you're doing there or you don't know what's going on or what God intends you to gather from it, you don't like where you're at, you don't feel comfortable where you're at, this is hard sailing, do you still trust Jesus to guide your life even in those circumstances? The reason why I ask this is because I would think that most of us would answer that question, yes, at least in theory, right? In theory, that, that sounds great to do. Yeah, of course I trust Jesus. Uh, of course I trust Jesus in all the circumstances. He know, we can get real, he knows better than me, amen? He's got more power than me. And we can get so spiritual with our, these kinds of answers that we miss the reality that we know something in theory, but we don't really live it in reality. And the disciples are about to find out, as we approach Luke chapter 8, that there's a very big difference between what you know about Jesus in theory and what you believe about Jesus in reality. Look with me at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Here's what we see. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. Now, real quick, I want you to understand, this is a definitive statement. Jesus is saying, I'm going to the other side of the lake. Come high water, come wind, come rain. Never, if the boat sinks, I am going to the other side of the lake. Now, a, a word spoken by Jesus is as good as done. Okay? Now, that, that, that is where faith starts in our life. If Jesus said it, it's done. All right? When Jesus says, I know the hairs on your head, I promise to never leave you or forsake you, that's done for us. And that's the situation that the disciples should have found themselves in from this very moment. Jesus said, we're going to the side of the lake. We'll get there. Okay? That's as close to the prosperity gospel as you'll ever hear me preach. Okay? Whatever Jesus says about your life, it will be done. Now, notice what happens. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Man, I'm sorry, you guys. That's so bad, right? So, I, somebody in the back row like, should have made room for you guys. It's all right. Y'all get an extra crown in heaven for having to do that. <laughs> but as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, real quick, let's, let's talk about this. He fell asleep. Does, any, does anyone know someone that can fall asleep no matter where they're at? Yeah? 
Brett Mitchell's raising his hand. He can. My wife fell asleep in a, dri- in a like McDonald's drive-thru one time. It might have been Wendy's, right? But like she was ordering and fell asleep, all right? I'd like uh, one Dave's double, and then she's asleep, right? Uh, so Jesus evidently is that kind of person, right? They set out on the boat, and before you know it, he's asleep. Now, it's important to provide a little context as to why this is important that he fell asleep this quick. If you go back and look, Luke is doing something very in particular about in painting Jesus' life in the first eight chapters. Luke is showing us that Jesus is living at a breakneck speed. Jesus is constantly, he's the essence of a first century celebrity. Everywhere he goes, people are crowding him in. Everywhere he goes, people want something for him. So he's constantly ministering. He's constantly teaching. He's constantly healing. He's constantly forgiving. He is constantly at work. It, it, the, only thing, the only thing I could think of that, that kind of illustrates this, I don't know if anybody's ever watched this, but man, I love this show. Has anybody ever watched The West Wing? Uh, it was, it, this was a television show that was on like uh, uh, 20 years ago, probably not at this point, right? The way, if you've never watched The West Wing, do yourself a favor and go watch it. Man, it's great television, and it'll make you long for a better political time in America. And, but that's not today's sermon, okay? But there's a scene toward the end of the series of The West Wing where this guy, his name is Matt Santos, is running uh, a campaign for president, okay? And as he's running, it really do, the show does a good job of showing you just how busy someone who runs for president is. And so they show a montage of this guy. Everybody knows what a montage is, like all these scenes filled together, of this guy running for president. And he's working the rope lines, and he's kissing babies and shaking hands, and he's giving speeches, and he's on to the next, and he's talking to reporters. And over the top of this montage, they lay Steve Miller band, uh, Big Jet Airliners. Everybody know that song? It's one of the best scenes in movie history. And I, I, I mean TV history. I watch this and I think, man, that guy is so cool, right? But the, really what captures this moment of how hard it is to run for president is as this montage draws to an end, the Stevie Miller band song plays out. The plane takes off again and the guy's asleep. In other words, he's done. He's done all he can do. He's gassed. He needs a break. And in this moment, if you read back through Luke chapter 1 through 7, that's really what we find Jesus at. That Jesus is almost saying, hey, let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the, uh, other side of the lake. Because Jesus, is, it seems like he has to be thinking, hey, if I get in that boat, I can sleep for a couple hours. So Jesus, he, he's been working hard, and as they go across, he falls asleep. Verse 23, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake. Now, in the literal language, you kind of miss what it's saying here. It says, a great windstorm of wind fell on the lake. So, hey, it's kind of trying to help us see something. This ain't just a normal storm, all right? A great windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, this is not something that's completely out of the ordinary on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee lies below sea level and is surrounded by mountains. So all of my uh, meteorologists in here, all of my Chris Justices, you know exactly what happens as the cold air comes off of those mountains and the wind blows down and then meets the warm air coming up off of that lake. A storm, a pressure system is created and storms pop up really quick. This happens all the time. But I want you to notice here that this is not just any storm. It says they were filling with water and they were in danger and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Now the reason we know this is a very, very big storm is because most of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. 
Here's what that means. They were used to this kind of thing. Peter's not letting the other disciples wake Jesus up for a little bit of rain, a little bit of wind. He's Peter. He can handle it. He's in control. But notice what happens here. The situation has grown so far beyond their control that they go in a panic and ask Jesus to wake up. Why? Because they think they're going to die. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. We'll come back to that later. And he said to them, listen, where is your faith? This is how we know that the disciples were not trusting Jesus in this moment. He says, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled to one another, saying, who then is this, that even the winds and the water, command, he commands them, and even they obey? I love this. They were, afraid in the, they were afraid before Jesus spoke, and they're afraid when Jesus speaks. Now their fear is just in the right place. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you for this word. I pray that, that your uh, authoritative word would go through this room, dear God. Over the next few minutes, I understand, dear God, that I am not in control. Dear God, that I have nothing to offer these people but your word. And I just pray that your word would go forth. And I know that your word promises it will not return void. So let it be done in the next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. This story is a very familiar one, and it, high, it, it, it introduces to us two competing themes, all right? We, we, you, you've, I'm probably not introducing to you a story that you've never read, but in this story, it introduces us two competing themes that we need to give thought to this morning. First, it introduces the theme of our trust in Christ, the disciples' level of trust in Christ. And the second thing that it introduces is this, Christ's authority in the world. Now, these two things will come back together at a certain point, but these are the two themes that this text seems to be putting before us, that this is what Jesus wants you to understand, that we should trust him and that he has authority. Now, uh, uh, let me have just a moment of confession before you this morning, okay? So confession time for the preacher in front of all 150 of you. This, is, this should be fun for me, okay? Every week when I prepare a sermon, there, there comes a point as I, I, open, I open the Bible and I read the text and I reread the text and I read the text and then I, I spend some time praying and then I might read commentaries and begin taking notes every week as I go through this process. And sometimes it happens at different points. Sometimes I can read the text for the first time. Sometimes it takes reading the text 17 times and praying. Sometimes it takes reading commentaries. All of that to say there's a moment in time usually when each week I feel like the Holy Spirit kind of clicks the message with me and I know exactly how I'm going to say what I need to say and what I should say and what the text is trying to communicate. This week, that never happened. And when I say it never happened, I, I'm still not sure it's happening even as I'm up here, okay? But like I pulled it out Tuesday, read, study, prayed, nothing. Thursday, read, study, pray, nothing. Friday morning, read, study, pray, nothing. Saturday morning, read, study, pray, nothing. Even to this morning, I, even when I'm, I'm putting this together, it's still, I'm struggling with this, God. There is no click. There is no, I, I know exactly what you want me to say. And so that forced me, and, and can I just tell you, it's a great feeling when you're going to speak to about roughly 400 people and you know not one word of what God wants you to say. Like, I, I just want you to know, I'm not confident enough in myself to get up here and say, I got something every one of you need to know, right? You got a lot of stuff I probably need to know. So as I, on the way in, it, that, that forced me into the uncomfortable situation of me having to ask, God, why, what's off this week? What is, not, what is not normal this week? And it forced me to begin to ask, is there something in this text that I'm not picking up? That like, even personally, more than normal, that I'm not living out like I should. 
And so as I thought about this, I thought, well, am I not, if I can be honest with you, I'm good with Christ's authority. I feel like, you know, like as good as someone can be. Like, I understand that Jesus Christ is in control of everything. Like, I, I'm down with John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created through Him, and nothing was created with Him that was not created with Him. Like, I'm good with that. Like, I, I understand Jesus speaks and stuff happens. He's on a throne right now. I get that. And so I, I, I kind of felt like, man, Lord, that didn't seem to be it. And the more, I, the closer I got to Harrison Bridge this morning, the more God started convicting me. The reason why there is no click that for me this week is that if I can be honest with you, I still don't know that, I, that I've got even remotely figured out what it means to walk through life trusting in Christ despite the circumstances. So what I'm saying to you is I'm about to preach for roughly the next 20 minutes, and I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I should not be the one preaching this message. Outside of what the Bible says about trusting in Christ, I got nothing to offer you this morning. Because I'm figuring this out. And can I just be honest with you? There, I, the, more I, the more God revealed this to me this morning, the more I started to realize the circumstances that directly reveal it in my life more than any other. Let me just tell you where I feel like God's highlighting this for me this morning. It's been a great, like, just really comfortable, convictionless morning this morning. The, what, the place where Jesus, I feel like, highlights this more in me than any other place uh, is specifically deals with pregnancy and children. Now, as you can tell, I'm not pregnant, but my wife is, all right? And if you were to go and ask my wife this morning, don't do it because it would be really embarrassing for me, what the first year or what her nine months of pregnancy and the first year of Danny's life were like after she was born, here's what she would tell you. It was absolutely miserable. You want to know why? Because I like to live in such a way where I can control things. I like to feel real in control, right? As long as I can lay my head on the pillow at night and think, okay, life's going pretty good. I can steer the direction of this stuff. We're good. I feel pretty good. But nothing spells you're not in control like a baby growing that you can't see. Right? You ever thought about that? Doctors tell me that that, that, that baby's growing. That all of a sudden there wasn't a heartbeat, and then somewhere there's a heartbeat, and like le- there was just this little lump, and legs, and arms, and fingers come out of that. And you know how much I can control of that? Nothing. And that messes with me. Like I start thinking, God, is this baby going to be all right? And you know what I can control about it being all right? Nothing. And then guess what? Here's what they do. They take a, I was 21, I think, at the time, 22. They took a 22-year-old and gave it a six-pound infant and sent me home and said, keep it alive. You don't know what I did? I, my hands got real tight with everything in life. I thought, I, gotta, I, gotta, I, can, I can take care of it all. I can make sure Jenna has what she needs. I can be everything I need to be to her. I can, I can take care of Danny. I can make sure Danny, I can, I can make all the problems go away. Until I realized I can do none of that. And that lasted for about a year. Because about a year something happened and you feel like, I can control this human being. I may have to but I can control it, <laughs> right? And so, hey, listen, that, that kind of, that maybe I dealt with it, maybe I didn't. God definitely taught me a lot, but you know what re- made it re-manifest? About seven months ago, my wife came to me and she said, you need to go look on the bathroom counter. All right, here come all those feelings rushing back in. And then we go to the doctor, and everybody who goes to the doctor, you know that first doctor's appointment, what you're looking for, right? That heartbeat. Like you're just, and it's a, they put it on there, and I'm, right? The nurse is like, are you okay? I'm like, if you could just give me a brown paper bag, that would be great. I'll be fine. 
And we go into this doctor's appointment. Listen, the doctor's appointment. The, do- the doctor and, the, uh, and Jenna talk back and forth for a few minutes. And they completely ignore me, as women do in that situation. And when we left, I was mad, guys. I'll be honest. I was real mad. Because I felt like they didn't tell me anything. I, Jenna, I was like, Jenna, they didn't talk about this. They didn't talk about that. They didn't tell me what. They, she said, Dallas, what do you want them to tell you? That's what she asked me on the way home. We were on I-85. It was great. Uh, she said, what do you want them to tell you? I said, I want them to tell me what to expect. She said, you have a child. <laughs> you know what to expect. And here's what she looked at me and said. She said, you need to sit back and relax because you can't control any of this. And here's what I realized in that moment. I don't even really like her that much. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I told the same joke with her in here, okay? No, she, she reminded me. I'm not in control of it. And listen, here's what I'm telling you, that I've discovered about myself that I like to be in control, that I'm good with telling people about Jesus. I'm good with the whole Jesus died on the cross, save me, forgive me of my sins things, as long as Jesus lets me keep my hands on the wheel. And here's what I'm telling you. That's not trusting Christ. So I'm not sure I'm the person to be preaching this message to you, but the more I think about it, I don't think you're the person to be preaching it to me either. Because let's be honest, my pregnancy and kids might be doing this to me. What does it for you? Maybe it's not pregnancy and kids. Maybe it's your infertility. Maybe you've just been battling, and you feel like, I can do it. I just want to control this. Maybe it's that marriage that you got that you feel like, as long, I'm trying to keep my hands on it, and it's just slipping through, and, the, and man, I just can't control it, and God, I want you to let me put my hands on this. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's, God, I need to put my hands on this, and I need to hold it tight, and, and the harder you grip, the more it squeezes through. So while, while I've got a long way to go, I, I'm sure we all do, so what we're going to do is rely on what Jesus tells us about trusting in Him this morning. Okay? So with that in mind, let's see this. Number one, I want you to see that a tested faith reveals our fear. A tested faith reveals our fear. I want you to notice something about the disciples this morning. That before this, there was not a moment to reveal where their faith was really at. Think about it. Up until this point with the disciples, it's all peachy. Right? Jesus has made them catch a, a, a boatload of fish. They're following him. Jesus is healing sick people. Jesus is teaching the massive crowds. They're growing the biggest movement. Jesus has even healed someone, raised someone from the dead. Can I just tell you, things look great at this point for the disciples. But a tested faith reveals our fear. You may be here this morning and think, my faith is good. You don't know that until you go through a storm. Okay? So they get in the boat, and let me just tell you what they realized really quickly. There is a difference between theoretical knowledge and applied knowledge. Because theoretically, as they got in the boat, they knew exactly what Jesus was capable of. They had, at this point, seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law. They had, at this point, seen him catch so many fish when they had fished all night and not caught anything. They had, at this point, seen him clean, clean the leopard, and they had, at this point, seen him raise the dead. However, the problem is not their theoretical knowledge. The problem is that as they got in the boat and as the wind started blowing, their theoretical knowledge did not transfer to the reality on the ground. And what was the result? Fear. The Bible says they were afraid. Now, 
Let's think about this. Maybe fear is not the right word. I know some of you men in here kind of bristle back when I start talking about living in fear, okay? Maybe anxiety is a better word. Maybe you're just anxious all the time because you're trying to control everything and steer your life a certain direction. Maybe that's a better word. Maybe lack of faith is a better word. But I'm telling you, the result of this is that they were not living a life of faith. Now, it's imperative to see that this not only happens to the disciples, it happens to us. That we are church people, we come in this room every week, and we hear the stories, right? And guess what? We got a better view of it than the disciples did, because we know from this vantage point, he's got so much power that one day they hung him on a cross, and he came out the other side. We know the power in theory. The problem is it doesn't transfer into life. And so there are oftentimes we live with this anxiety. We live in this fear. We live in this stage of, oh my gosh, if I can't control this, it's going to fall apart. But we've got to notice why the disciples here are so fearful. I want you to note that it doesn't seem to be their circumstances that contribute to their fear. You say, well, Dallas, I can tell you why they're afraid. They're in the middle of a storm and they're about to die. Jesus does not think that's why they're afraid. Jesus seems to be implying here that they should be full of faith and not full of fear despite their circumstances. How do we know that? You go read Mark's account of this, and Mark asks a different. Mark has Jesus asking a different question. When he wakes up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and here's what Jesus says in Mark's account. Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? In other words, what Jesus seems to be saying is despite the circumstances, you shouldn't be afraid. So where is their fear coming from? It seems to me that their fear is originating from their forgetfulness and their failure to apply what they already know. You see, they know who Jesus is. But in this moment, they've forgotten that Jesus is in the boat and they've forgotten what Jesus is capable of. And they're freaking out. They believe that they are going to die. And can we just talk about this for a second? This is really irrational. To believe you're going to die when Jesus says you're going to the other side of the lake is the height of irrationality. But this is what fear does. Gordon Lightfoot wrote a, a lyric. He said, who, who can tell me where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes into hours? Who can tell me where the love of God goes where the waves turn the minutes into hours? You see, what, he, what he's getting at there is it's really easy to talk about the love of God when everything's smooth sailing. The question for us is, do we know that God loves us? Do we still trust God when we go in the middle of storms? And the disciples here are obviously failing that test. They've become irrational. And you would have thought that at some point, maybe Peter, as the leader of the disciples, would have said, hey, guys, we don't have to be afraid. We can stop for just a second because here's the deal. Yesterday, we saw, this, we saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead. And if he can raise somebody from the dead, surely he can stop the storm. No, what do they do? They think they're going to perish. So the question for us becomes, we're real critical of the disciples in this moment, the question is how well do we trust Christ? When we meet the storms in life, how well do we trust Christ? Because it's one thing to trust Him in theory and another thing to trust Him when the sailing gets rough. And it's also worth mentioning that this story shows us the value of storms in the Christian life. Can I just tell you that most of us long for the days when the sailing is smooth and the storms are few, right? We long for those days, guys, when everything in life goes the way it should, when we can lay our head on our pillow at night and think, man, life is good. And why, why it's good to long for those days. There's far more value in storms than there are smooth days. 
You talk to anybody who's been around the block and you ask them about the times in their life that were most valuable to them. You talk about the times in their life that were most influential where they learned the most about God and here's what they'll tell you. They learned the most about God in the storms, not in the smooth sailing. Why, why are storms so valuable? Storms are valuable because they move us from theory to reality. Because you, you have to have a place. It's good to know it all in theory, but you have to have a place where you can actually start to walk this out. And I, I got a small illustration for this, I, even though obviously I'm still, not, I'm still learning, I'm still growing in this. But I, I can remember one time where this became crystal clear for me. I thought about this yesterday morning. But when Danny was born, uh, I've, I've told the story before about how she had a, a rough birth and, and very nearly died. And uh, y'all don't tell her this because it would hurt her feelings, but Dan, when Danny was born, it was so tough that she was not a pretty baby, all right? And I mean that. Do not tell her that. She, if she knows I said that from the stage, she would be, like, mortified, right? But my dad walked in after Danny was born, and I'll never forget my dad's first question is, is she going to be okay? I was like, thanks, Dad. I think she's lovely too, right? But she just, she, she, and she, part of what was wrong was she got suctioned out. And so if you, mamas, if you've ever had a baby that was suctioned out, you know what happens to their head. Well, Danny, we went from bad to worse with Danny because the first four months of Danny's life, me and Jenna were looking for like the refund policy, right? She was, she was an exceptionally difficult baby. And I remember we took her to the uh, pediatrician somewhere between three and four months. And the pediatrician looked at me and she said, this is the angriest child that I have ever seen. And I said, thanks, we love her a lot, she's great. <laughs> right, like, what do you say to that, right? And so, it, I, we were trying to figure out what's going on and they sent her to a pediatric neurologist. Now, if, if you're here and you got multiple kids, you know kind of how this works, right? First kid, like it's bumper pads, right? You get down to like the fourth kid and you're just like, hey, get in the car. But first kids, right, it's, it's bumper pads. Like you're trying to take care of them. And, like, can I just tell you, there is no more of a fearful moment when they look at you and send your three-month-old to, like, a, a, a pediatric neurologist because they think some pressure's on her head, and that's why she's so dang mean, right? And so everything in life at this point was just going great. Me and Jenna hadn't slept in three weeks. We were arguing with each other. We were arguing with a three-month-old, as rational as that is, right? And we were getting sent to a pediatric neurologist. And I remember one day just, like, telling God, like, this ain't what it's cracked up to be right? Be fruitful and multiply, you say, God, but this ain't it, right? Like, the, I don't know what, what I'm doing here, God. And I remember one morning, I, I went down, and I was reading Psalm 91. I was literally on my knees as I read this. Psalm 91, there's a verse in it that says, no evil will come near you, and no plague shall come near your tent. And here's what I realized in that moment, that there's a very big difference from knowing that in theory and believing that in reality. Storms move us from theory to reality. So the thing is, don't despise the storms as they come. Live and embrace the storms because it's in those storms that God's going to do something to you, teach you something in that. Now the question becomes for each of us, listen, what do we do with our fear? What do we do with our anxiety? What do we do? Because can I just tell you, I feel, I, I feel kind of bad for the disciples here. It seems like their response seems to be the natural response. The problem is not the fear. The problem is what do we do with our fear when it comes? When our, feet, when our faith is tested and fear moves in, here's what we do. We introduce our fear to Christ. We introduce our fear to Christ. The second thing I want you to see, Jesus is the solution to our fear. Notice what happened. If you remember when we, when we started uh, the book of Luke, I told you that we had one purpose in reading through the book of Luke. Does anybody remember what I told you we wanted to do? 
Every week, we want to open the Bible, and we want to do what? See Jesus. Because we have a conviction that if we can just see Jesus enough, and we can just see Jesus clearly, then that changes everything, right? It seems to me that Luke is operating out of this same conviction, because Luke puts Jesus forward as the solution to all of our problems, no matter what we're coming in, going through, especially the solution to our fear as we walk through storms. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Christ, because it's meant to make things clear for his followers as to who he actually is. So what happens here? Jesus speaks to the storm as if it were an unruly child. The Bible says that he rebukes the wind and the waves. And my first question is, what does it mean to rebuke wind? You can't see wind. What does it mean to rebuke unruly waves? He gets up and he speaks to them as if they were a child. And what is the response? The wind and the waves cease. Now, I think we could do ourselves a little bit of a favor by seeing what's actually happening here if we overlay the stories of Matthew and Mark and Luke on each other as they talk about a story. In Mark, we're told that the disciples, Mark chapter 4, when they wake up, here's what they say. Teacher, teacher, we're perishing. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, we're told that they wake up and they cry, Lord, Lord, we're perishing. Do you not care? And in Luke, we're told they, they wake him up yelling, Master, Master. So there seem to be mixed accounts of, uh, of what they are saying to the disciples. And I think what they're, we're trying to see is probably all of these are true. It's just absolute chaos as everything's unfolding. That you got one disciple yelling, Master, Master, and you got another disciple yelling, Teacher, Teacher, and you got another disciple yelling, Lord, Lord, we're perishing. Do you not care? We're going to die. And the wind and the waves, they're crashing. And Jesus finally begins to bat an eye. And he rolls over. And you have to believe there's a little bit of disappointment. Because just 24 hours ago, he was raising a man from the dead. And he wakes up and he speaks. And everything is calm. The chaos stops. Now, I'm a little jealous here because he speaks and the wind and the waves stop. And I can't get my five-year-old to stop, right? But this is who we're dealing with. This causes the disciples to ask a question. They say, who is this man? The disciples ask, who is this man? Now, this reveals a misunderstanding that existed in the disciples up to this point. Because you would have thought they knew the answer to this question. But evidently, what's happening here is meant to clear up the answer to this question. Evidently, they've been misunderstood. Like, yeah, we know this guy is powerful. We know he's a miracle worker. But we're not really quite sure who he is. Because if you'll remember, put yourself in their first century minds. In the Old Testament, there were people who had done stuff similar to what Jesus had done, right? If you'll remember, God had empowered Moses to put his staff in the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parted, right? If you'll remember, Elijah had raised up someone's dead son. If you'll remember, Elijah prayed, and there was no rain for three years, and then he prayed again, and there was rain. So there had been people in the history of the Old Testament who spoke and who did things and stuff happened. Now, here's the difference. Up until this point, there had never been anyone in the course of the Old Testament or anyone in the course of the world who had the sheer audacity to speak to wind and silence it. That alone belongs to Jesus. And something's happening here, 
as the, as the disciples see this. You see, the disciples knew the Old Testament Psalms. And here's what the Old Testament Psalms say. Psalm 65, verse 7 says this. He is, God is who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the tumult of the people. Psalm 88, verse 9 says this. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you steal them. Psalmist is saying something. Psalmist is saying, hey, only one person controls the seas. Psalm 107, verse 28 and 29. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. You see, the disciples undoubtedly know these psalms. And as Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves, all of a sudden this begins to wash over them that we are not dealing with a man. We are dealing with Yahweh come to us in human form. And because of that, they were scared of the wind and the rain before. Now they're scared of him. Who is this man? That's a rhetorical question. It's perfectly clear who this man is. This man is God himself. And Jesus is make, aiming to make clear something. All authority on heaven and in earth, on, on, in earth and in heaven is mine. And the connection now is starting to be clear between his authority and our trust. Listen to this. A disciple's trust in Christ should be directly related to his authority in the world. Here's what I mean by that. As you leave here, your level of trust in who Christ is and what Christ should do and can do and how Christ is going to take care of you should be directly related to his authority in the world. And here's what we're told in this scene, that he has all authority. That he's the God who can calm the seas and calm the storms. That he's the God who can raise the dead. So how much should you trust him? You should trust him in proportion to his authority. What's his authority? All of it. How much should you trust him? All of it. Such that, here's the point for us, Jesus is in control and we have no reason to fear no matter the storm we're in. The application is crystal clear. If he can control the wind and the waves, then he isn't scared of any of the problems you have. Now that's comforting to me. Because if, if I'm dealing with the God who can control the wind and the waves, he's not scared of the pregnant woman. I'm a little scared of her, but he's not. If I'm dealing with God who can control the wind and the waves, he's not scared of the bad decisions that my teenager is going to make one day. If I'm dealing with a God who can control the wind and the waves, I don't have to fear the direction of my career. He's got all authority. He will handle it. Here's the point. If he's in the boat, what do you have to be afraid of? So as we close, I think, listen. I told you, I, I, I've struggled all week figuring out what, how this applies to me, much less how it applies to you, right? And so as we close, I think the best thing I can do is tell you what my aim here is each week. I hope you know this by now if you come. My aim each week is to open the Bible and produce well-formed disciples of Jesus. That, that, are, that is people who leave this place and go out and live in the world for Jesus and live differently and make an impact on the kingdom of God. <coughs> And here's the point. We can't be those well-formed disciples until we learn to trust Jesus no matter the circumstances in life. So I'm praying for you that we would be the kind of people <coughs> that we would be the kind of people who trust Him no matter the storm we're in. And if I can be honest, 
more than I'm praying for you this morning, now, after realizing everything I've realized this morning, I'm praying for me. That I would be the kind of man who trusts God no matter the middle of the storm I'm in. And realize this. Every stage of life, we're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or getting ready to go in another one. So it's real important to know who's in the boat with you as you go through them. Pray with me. Dear God, I just pray that the foolish ramblings of a man will give you glory. I understand, God, just how far short I fall. Dear God, I understand just how far short I fall of, of trusting in you in every circumstance, Lord. God, you've made that clear to me, and I pray that you would forgive me. And I pray that you would teach me to live accordingly. God, I pray that over the next few moments, dear God, we would genuinely ask ourselves, dear God, not go through the motions and give a Christian answer, but that we would genuinely ask ourselves, do we trust you in every circumstance? And dear God, my aim is just, dear God, your aim, dear God, that we would be well-formed disciples who walk in the world and trust you no matter what's going on around us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.